If you don't already know, the Floor 9 listener survey is live. It's going to be live all of December and probably part of January. Uh, it takes five minutes. It means a lot to us here at the show uh, to get your feedback so we can better improve uh, the types of shows we do, the content we talk about. Uh, so if you have got five minutes, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. Go fill it out. Uh, thank you. Hello. Thank you for joining us up here on Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and welcome to the year-end episode of Floor 9. Uh, we have with us today Adam Simon and Christina Andronley from our strategy team. Welcome back. Hello. It's so good to be here. I'm so happy you guys are here. Honestly, um, again, Angel's not with us, so um, looks like you guys are my new co-host because <laughs> Angel always finds a way to not be here. Um, but this week, we'll, we'll be, we'll be kind of talking about a wrap-up of the 2018 year. Uh, we'll look back at our, our trends and our predictions that we had, and we'll see how they all fleshed out. And we're excited to see where everything goes into 2019. We'll be coming at you live from the show floor in uh, Vegas uh, as our Wish first we were podcast. going to a floor show. Yeah, that, that would be fun, right? That'd <laughs> or a be, show flu. Or a show <laughs> flu. <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be. Don't say flu, Adam. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's where Angel is. <laughs> yeah. He's is. at the show flu. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, let's just dive right into uh, our very first uh, area that we were watching in 2018. question was, will world governments regulate any of the major tech platforms? Christina and Adam, what do you think? Well, we haven't seen any outright regulation yet, but it sure seems likely that this is coming uh, probably early in 2019. And actually, just this morning, we saw that uh, France is going to start taxing uh, Google, Apple, and Facebook. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily regulation in the way that I think we were originally thinking about it. But it seems, given all of the... Um, all of the drama around um, tech platforms and the uh, sort of the tech lash in in public opinion. Um, <clears throat> it certainly seems like their uh, governments around the world are sort of primed to start regulating uh, tech companies in some way, shape, or form. Right, and even a lot of tech companies have said that they're open to it now. Um, it seems like they kind of want it in a way, especially I would think. From, I think from like the Facebook side of things, like they want help it seems like or like they want some sort of regu re regulation to keep them in control uh so it's definitely i feel like like we're on the right path or like we're on a path i don't know if it's right or not to having you know more regulation um within the tech industry what about you christina what do you think yeah i would say that 2018 i feel like the biggest theme this whole year has been tech lash on the consumer side against all of the major platforms um you see apple building in controls for screen time i think consumers are just becoming more and more aware of the impact that social media, of being on their phones all the time, um, and just the impact that technology has in their lives. And kind of I'm seeing more and more of a an active curation of that interaction with technology, at least on the consumer side. And I think governments can be slower to catch on, but I think the what was kind of in my mind holding back tech lash against you know, the major platforms, but I think about Amazon too. Amazon has been so pro-consumer and everything they do benefits consumers. It's really hard to regulate against that. But I think consumer sentiment around not just Amazon, but all technology platforms is changing. I don't think the HQ2 stuff helped Amazon. 
in addition to a host of other examples. But where consumers are moving their attention, I think governments are, you know, following as well. And and I think 2019 will be a make or break year to see kind of what happens in the space. Yeah, I mean, for governments to regulate technology companies, first, public sentiment has to at least be neutral against them. You, if When they were so much in the public's favor, uh, it's really hard for governments to take action against them in any way, shape, or form, uh, just because... Uh, that would, you know, politicians are elected for the most part, knock on wood, uh, and uh, <laughs> therefore have to sort of answer to the back to the public. So it's really hard, you know, if everybody loves the companies for them to be regulated, um, especially in any sort of restrictive way. But I think that what has happened in 2018 is even though we haven't seen regulation yet, we've seen this, the, the stage set for it because the public opinion has shifted. Um, and I think there's some were definitely some unexpected places that that happened. I think the HQ2 stuff for Amazon, definitely. We've seen Apple and Google announce similar uh, size expansions um, to their and new locations for for new offices uh, in the past couple of weeks with a lot less fanfare and a lot fewer tax breaks. And that's seems to sort of be received much better by the public. And also, I think, is kind of trolling Amazon in a little bit in a little way. Yeah, well, it, it's again, you know, there, there's there's Apple uh, being a, a a follower in a sense, like not putting the first product out there, but letting somebody else do it first and like seeing how that happened. And then they're like, ah. We're not going to do what Amazon <laughs> just did because apparently that, that did not go well. Yeah. Um, the other uh, interesting thing, regulation that we did see actually get passed this year was uh, in the um, uh, in the EU um, requiring streaming services to start um, carrying at least 30% local content, um, which I think is actually super interesting. That's not something that it was on our radar really as a possibility until it happened. Um, and it's, uh, I don't think it's going to really impact, um, Netflix and Amazon and, uh, Hulu eventually when they do go international. I think that they are prepared for that. And it sort of is interesting in a way that it offers up opportunity for existing content creators who now know that there's going to be, uh, increased demand for content, uh, for the EU market. Yeah, if anything, that just helps Netflix's cause of building more content, producing more content. So uh, I can see the benefit for that. The I don't see any downfalls at the moment, but you never know how things uh, turn out. Well, and I think that that's the thing to keep an eye on is that very often the result of regulation of these companies, yes, it might um, kind of hurt them in some way, shape, or form, but because large companies are better uh, equipped to deal with regulation, it probably will just serve to entrench these giant tech companies even more. Um, having a requirement like that from the EU just means that it's going to be harder for, like, let's just say, a small upstart streaming service. There's a lot of reasons why it might be hard to be a small upstart streaming service these days, <laughs> but uh, certainly one of them would be that uh, you can't just, um, you know, flip a switch and be international, uh, or at least in the EU, without having a certain amount of EU content. Right. Gotcha. Well, with that, let's move on to our second topic of the podcast today, and that is going to be what verticals will Amazon tackle next? Um, obviously, there's been a large push into healthcare. We've seen that through uh, the joint venture between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and uh, excuse me, Berkshire Hathaway uh, and J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as Amazon's acquisition of PillPack. So they're definitely on their way, uh, slowly but surely, into this highly re- highly regulated uh, industry that's out there. Um, but what else do you guys think might happen? Any other big industries coming your way? 
Yeah, I mean, the healthcare thing is interesting. It's definitely going to take a few years to really play out for Amazon. Uh, you know, we know that there's a lot of other areas that they're looking at. Um, but I, I suspect that Amazon might actually slow their entrance into new markets for a little while, maybe maybe hit pause on that going into 2019, just what, because... No, so what, what, what makes you think that, or why would they want to do that? Uh, public perception. I, think, okay. I do think that part of the negative public perception about Amazon, such that it does exist, is that they're getting too big and they're in too many parts of people's lives. And I do think that, you know, for some people, Amazon has definitely earned that. But I think that the perception, there's a danger of them getting too big too quick. And, you know, I don't think anybody... You know, I think people are generally excited about the idea of Amazon driving down drug prices, for example, in the healthcare industry and disrupting the healthcare industry in uh, and in forcing it to modernize. But I do think that there is some, are some people who are who are starting to look askance at just how much what percentage of their wallet goes to Amazon um, and and which products can they no longer uh, get uh, or justify getting from someplace that's not Amazon. The easiest low hanging fruit in my mind is fashion. I think Amazon has tried to do fashion in a number of different ways. Uh, hasn't really been able to compete at the premium end in the same way that Walmart has with Bonobos and their new jet black service. Uh, so I could see them. It's almost like a benign category too, that doesn't have any, it has cultural stakes of course, but isn't something so regulated as a pill pack, for example. Um, and you can easily acquire share there uh, and digitize it and just make that, you know, fashion uh, retailer more efficient and streamline things like that. Um, I do think the move to DC, what that signals to me is potentially picking off these more highly regulated, harder to get into areas like healthcare. We'll, we'll see what impact that has as, as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. The um, I think Amazon, like I said, Amazon's been wanting to do something to fashion. Like they put a lot of effort into fashion. It hasn't worked out for them, you know, because like even like they have like twenty five, thirty different fashion brands that are just like third party labeled, but like Amazon owns them. So that's obviously a big category. I think they want to get into. It's just how they're getting there. Um, it's kind of taking some twists and turns. It's not as, um, you know, I guess straightforward or streamlined as Amazon, or excuse me, as Walmart acquiring, but like Bonobo. So like that got Walmart directly into this higher end uh, side of things. But then again, if you look at Amazon's business model, I mean, like they're really focusing on this convenience uh, side of the spectrum. So you know, maybe where they are is exactly what, what, what they need to be doing currently. Yeah. And contrary to what, what, how we talk about Amazon and fashion, they do sell a lot of clothing. It's just a lot of basics. Um, so the, the part the convenience side of things where it doesn't matter quite as much you know how it looks and how high quality it is um, if you're just buying your socks and underwear from them like they're already killing it in that sector yeah so i think you know it, i don't know it'd be interesting to see amazon rather than expand into yet another category in uh, 2019 to uh, maybe look at what they're doing in fashion already and try to make that better i think this leads to to a broader conversation around what they do with private label uh, yes. especially I was just thinking as they grow their share in advertising and work more and more with the brands that are selling on their platforms, whether or not they continue to take the high volume, high margin categories and create their own private label brand. If they're relying so heavily on advertising from those bigger brands, I wonder if they'll slow that or what that impact will be. That's uh, interesting. Uh, that's interesting. I haven't even thought about that. Cause like, like, cause like, like, like the one stat I have about their advertising arm is that it's 
supposed to like surpass in revenue by 2021 what a like what aws is bringing in so that's a crazy amount of growth over these next you know two or three years um and if like to your point if a lot of it is coming in from advertisers that they're trying to make like the like a knockoff or it's like a, like a private label version of that. Where is that fine line? Like, how do they ride that? Like, like, like what do they kind of tow there? I have no, I got nothing else to say besides I'm fascinated by that. Uh, Adam, do you have any commentary on that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's the, the Amazon private label question is a question for everybody who sells anything on Amazon. It is the one thing that people are concerned about and it is directly in opposition to the advertising platform at the end of the day. So yeah, it's I, I don't know what the answer is for them. It's because to be able, it's they're not going to be able to grow both of those things simultaneously. So they sort of have to pick which is the focus. Um, and you know, it's easy to say to 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 sort of write off looking at private label uh, granola or you know CPG goods. Um, but once they start getting into like they have private label mattresses now, and they have you know <laughs> private label um, you know I'm, like once if they start getting into private label clothing as well, which we know they have several clothing lines as well, it just starts to blur the lines. I think a little bit, right. But I think if we just look at it in more like the short term, knowing that they are growing this advertising business, just from like a media standpoint, from a brand standpoint, you know, if you are a CPG brand for now, I, this might be a, a a great place to look to expand your digital marketing and your and your advertising in the short term as you figure out like a, a larger strategy to potentially combat this um, private label conundrum that is uh, on Amazon currently. Well, sure, but then it's kind of like being held ransom, right? Like that that's what everybody is is worried about is that either you uh you know, pay up to advertise on Amazon or you get subject to sales pressure from their own private labels. Um and I think that that is the the concern and Amazon technically does have the market power to be able to do that. It just uh, creates a very adversarial relationship with your suppliers. So Right. Well, then do we think this could be a potential area of regulation? Going back to our first question, could this, in a sense, become like a marketplace that becomes more regulated on what can be sold or what can be replicated or you know, anything of that nature? Or is that too- I think that that's very unlikely, considering yeah. that even though Amazon is big, they're still tiny compared to um you know the overall retail landscape there's still just a tiny fraction of it it would be sort of unprecedented to uh try to regulate how they sell things um, especially when walmart is still um, actually a larger overall if you include the brick and mortar store as a much larger retailer yeah. i think it goes back to a calculation of are we a store or are we a media partner or are we everything to our brand partners uh, if the payoff of a long-term partnership is greater than the margin or revenue coming from private label, then it might be in their best interest to not end private label. I don't, I can't see a world where they end private label just because it's so profitable, but maybe they kind of pull back the reins and work harder with brands to surface their results to the top or give them preferential treatment or whatever that is. Yeah. In my mind, private label for Amazon strategically should exist to ensure that the other brands in the category get on their platform and sell on their platform. It's sort of like we don't want to not have a granola option. So we're going to make our own granola just in case um, I don't know who makes granola, Quaker's Oats, Quaker yeah. maybe, <laughs> General Mills, General Mills uh, decides that they don't want to sell granola on our platform. At least we have a granola option, you know, right. um, but that in general, you should be working with General Mills to promote that their own products instead of your private label. 
Yeah, well, I I think it's safe to say that we'll definitely be following this more closely in 2019, as there's a lot of um, you know un, undefined factors out there that you know I think we'll see play out. Um, but they can also totally be wild cards too, and just do something that we really didn't see coming. I didn't see Whole Foods come. I mean, grocery, yes, of course, but um, I they're you know they keep us on our toes. Yeah, that's for sure, and I think that's what makes it uh, so exciting to watch and talk about is. Um, while there is a, you know, some aspect of their business that is predictable that you can kind of look back and see how they like to grow. Uh, you just never know how fast or which ways they'll do it and the ways they get there can be pretty surprising. Similarly, our next question aligns with this a little bit in the sense that it was very surprising. Does Facebook enter the home? LOL. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they did. They, they in fact, did enter the home with a portal product. You can go out and buy it right now. However, there are a lot of strings attached to that product, mainly when it comes to consumer privacy and data. Uh, Christina, what are, your, what are your thoughts on the portal product and Facebook I getting in the home? I cannot believe they launched it. Why, why is that? So portal, in theory, is so lovely because I live in New York City. My parents live on the West Coast, and it's nice on, you know, a Sunday when I'm cleaning my apartment to have a speaker with a camera and video screen on it so they can be almost in my apartment with me, right, while I'm just doing my stuff and it can watch me walk around and all that stuff. But the fact that Facebook has a camera implanted in your home following you around is, I think, terrifying to most consumers. (laughs) I, I, Um, I would agree. I would agree. And I think there's almost like a disconnect between public perception of Facebook and Facebook's self-perception, I think. And still releasing Portal demonstrates that delta to me. Um, I haven't seen numbers on how Portal is doing. When we were in the Bay Area a couple weeks ago, there are billboards all over the city advertising it. Um, Yeah, yeah. There are billboards all over New York City also. I'm actually um, even more so, I think, than releasing it because clearly this thing had been sitting in the labs. They had it done. They were ready to go. We heard it was supposed to come out at um, their developer conference F8, which was like right after the Cambridge Analytica stuff broke. Understandably, they didn't release it. or That was probably the one smart decision they made about with this product is to not release it right then. But so I don't know. I thought when they did release it, they just felt like they had to and maybe they would – learn something from it and you know it would you know they were whatever it was just a a learning experience to ship some hardware because um, outside of the oculus they haven't really done that but they're spending so much money advertising it it's kind of insane Um, so it does seem like there's some disconnect i 100 agree with you christina that there's just a huge disconnect about i think public perception between public perception and what facebook thinks of themselves and it's really baffling. Yeah, well, and I think that just goes back to what I think at the core, Facebook thinks it's more than just like a social network that gets that monetizes off ads. Like they always say, we're a platform. They want to like I think I feel like they they've always wanted to grow into something that at their core they're not, and they're just struggling to get outside of just like we are a social network yeah. that monetizes off of advertisements. So it's like the more data we have about you, the more money we get. Like that is their business model, and yeah, it's like and- they're trying to think 
trying to expand that in ways that just aren't making a lot of sense. There are a lot of problems with that. There are a lot of difficulties that if they did want to go for being an advertised advertising based business that, uh, that serves everybody into being a, a platform that um, is for select users, that's going to be a, a challenging transition. But it's kind of it's also kind of like. Uh, you know, you don't start like a diet and exercise program the day before Thanksgiving, you know, like <laughs> it's just that there's something about the timing of it that, um, you know, portal makes a lot of sense for Facebook in a lot of ways. Just, it just does not make a lot of sense right now. Right. Um, if it, if it, if they had released it a year earlier, I think we would have a very, di- would have at least for the first year would have had a very different opinion of it. And I think that, you know, maybe even a year from now that they will, maybe one day get some cloud cover and uh, be able to bounce back from from their current uh, issues. But um, it's just weird timing. Yeah. And it's just, it's also just like unfortunate how it, it rolled out. And the first thing they said was that, you know, this won't be used to track and influence ads. <laughs> and then a week later, they correct themselves and saying, yes, we might use the information right. that we gather <laughs> about you and your conversations to better target advertisements across Facebook. So, um, it's just, that's, 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 that's a, that's a tough blow for them. And it, and it seems like it just keeps happening, you know, every three weeks, there's something new that comes out about the overall data privacy and trust. So, well, and to your point, the most recent, um, leak actually was that they leaked private photos, which is actually obviously, of course, terrible timing for something that has a camera attached to it. Um, but you know, to your point, I think the fact that the product people on the portal side said that it would be not be used to um, inform the advertising products, and then and they had to issue a public correction, just goes to show how the different sides of the company don't really seem to all be on the same page as to what they're doing, what their goals are, even. Well, and now I'm reading that Portal a couple days ago added a web browser, a couple of messengers, instant games like Battleship, Draw Something, Sudoku. Uh, ABC News and CNN are now adding content to Portal. So that what that tells me is people are not down with the camera feature, really. Or that's not, I should re-say that, that's not enough of a reason to buy for people. So they need to pile on more things. Yeah, but I'm just skeptical that anything else makes the camera worth it. <laughs> right. It, it dilutes the product. Yeah. Notably, Google, when they released their um, sort of smart screen uh, product, the Home Hub, it doesn't have a camera in it. Um, it's just a screen for Google Assistant. Um, and that, I think, is a lot easier sell for a lot of people. Um, even though using Facebook to video conference and video chat with your friends and family makes a lot of sense. It's just poor timing. Yeah. yeah. But while we're on the topic of the home, um, another question that we have here lined up is, so how do we think the whole Siri conversation has has come along in 2018 and has Apple really, you know, put the, I guess, the effort behind it or the, the resources behind it is the better word before, put the resources behind it to turn Siri just from like a, a something that you talk to to like a real true assistant for the home platform? Well... So I'm curious as to what you guys think because okay. I uh, actually think that Siri shortcuts were was a surprising development that was a lot better than what I was hoping for from Apple this year or but not what I was hoping for what I was expecting from Apple this year. I think what we're all hoping is that um, you know one day Siri becomes uh, the kind of thing that can run 
sort of more complicated, more intelligent, proactive uh, apps, for lack of a better word, um, across all of my Apple devices and including in the cloud. Um, and that's it's just not there yet. And I think from everything we've heard, maybe that's a next year thing. Um, but uh, I was so I we we had been hearing that that was probably a 2019 thing. So frankly, I wasn't expecting anything to happen with Siri this year. And shortcuts, while it is a very sort of power user feature, um, it is it does do a lot more than I think um, people give it credit for. Um, and it, it's a little too tied to your iPhone as opposed to running in the cloud or being able to influence other things. But uh, it's again, I, it's I, I guess my expectations were just so low that I was <laughs> pleased with it. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree that I don't think this year we've seen uh, Siri turn into a credible... I think it's credible in the sense that it's on every iPhone and everyone has an... You know, many people have an iPhone. Um, but I that's not to say that I don't expect next year to see some developments with Siri. And I think when you think about Siri versus Alexa versus Google Assistant, um, there's a very unique set of hardware that Apple has and will have Siri on, not just the phone, but um, I would expect AirPods to have Siri and, you know, the watch. And there's like a broader hardware ecosystem. And I think, you know, that might, I can't say that because there are more hardware devices, it's made Siri harder to program. But I do think Siri is different in that sense. And I think has to work across more places in different use cases. And especially as we or even still trying to figure out what the use case for a watch is versus AirPods and how voice plays into that. I think it'll be interesting to see the role that Siri plays in all of that. Kind of tying everything together yeah. potentially. Yeah. I mean, the I think the key thing here is that like they're definitely, I think, working towards something, knowing that they hired uh, Google's former head of search and artificial intelligence. Uh, but also, Adam, to your point about Siri shortcuts, um, you know, I think that development is a really interesting way to make up for the, like, I guess, like the lack of the overall intelligence of their of their voice assistant compared to Alexa or Google, because we know that, um, you know, Google's voice assistant is like the most accurate uh, Alexa kind of ranked second, and I think Siri's you know at a at a very solid third place right now. Uh, and then there's like Bixby, the talking dog with shoes, as as <laughs> as the Verge likes Can't to say. Can't wait to <laughs> see Bixby at CES. <laughs> the one time a year we get to talk to Bixby. Yeah, at the at kind of at the very bottom. Uh, so I I think what it is it's again it's it's a really interesting way to. Um, allow like third-party developers in a sense to work with Siri um, in a way that Apple still feels like they're in control of their product, uh, but kind of opens up a little bit to have that, you know, a bit more free flow form of development and customization, uh, which we know Apple is not privy to just knowing that they they, like, they like to control everything from you know, hardware to software, their full stack. Um, so again, it's something that I think we'll be keeping our eye on as it continues to move forward into, into 2019. Um, and as always, uh, Apple has not been the first to market before with something. They've been a dark horse and they've come out with a better product. So only time, only time will tell. But with that, we can move into something that uh, is very near and dear to Tim Cook's heart, and that is AR. So our next question that will be re that we will be reflecting on is how will the use cases and business models of AR develop in 2018? Christina, what are your what are your thoughts on this one? I think it's still you know a bit 
ways away from mass consumer adoption. But I do think a big thing for me in AR this year was the AR ads that Facebook launched. Um, they piloted a series of ads with the likes of Michael Kors and Tiffany, uh, where you would see the, the AR ad in feed and you were able to try on a necklace or sunglasses. And I think that's a really interesting use case for AR and one that's, you know, especially lucrative as you think about expanding that AR functionality to Instagram, which is today's Vogue, right? Um, I think that is probably the most substantial killer AR app yep. that we saw this year. I think, I still think we're testing and we're, we're certainly moving kind of from gaming and entertainment and those use cases into things that are providing utility, whether that's Ikea the Ikea place app or again, fashion try on things like that. Uh, and we'll see how you monetize that. And yeah, no, I, I can, I am still on the path. I completely agree with you. Um, even like the sites like uh, kayak and uh, KLM, they have integrated AR into their apps. So you can, when you travel, measure your, your, your luggage to make sure it fits on an airplane. So I think like utility is really where the opportunity is today. And again, uh, <laughs> you can't, you know, you can't, sell ads on an app that's an AR measuring tape, right? Right. But I think what we're both saying is that's one step into a broader business model question that yeah, provides but, utility, but also ties seamlessly along the customer journey and things like that. Yeah. And, it, and it's important, I think, to understand what, like, what, the, what the limitations are of AR today and what it's really good at. And, you know, so maybe right now it's not really... 100% focused on, let's say, like advertising or media, but it'll it'll get there in time. But now, as a brand, like think be, be thinking about it, like what parts of you know your business or your you know would would benefit from having some sort of maybe AR application embedded to make some sort of process e like easier or you know more consumer friendly, whatever whatever it might be. Uh, Adam, what about your what about you? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree that I I think utility is going to be the thing that really sells AR to most people at the end of the day. I'm not sure that we've really seen something that is so necessary that you can't do it in another way easily. Um, like I think the, the luggage measuring thing is cool, but also don't you just buy the luggage that's already sized for the overhead bin? <laughs> I feel like that's was a use was a use case of maybe, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, I think that there, there will be at some point, a utility that is only possible using AR. Mm -hmm. um, and and we, I don't think we've quite seen that yet. Well, 2019. <laughs> Keep an eye out, everybody. Uh, more, more to come. And with that, we'll move on to our next question here. It is, how much market share will voice and visual search capture in 2018? Adam, we'll start with you. What are your thoughts yeah. on this? Well, you know, we're actually... So let's... I think those two things are, are separate. We have we tend to group them together. We've been using that uh, projection that by 2020, 50% of searches will be voice or visual because it's a nice round number. Um, you know, we're we've got about a quarter of the country, a quarter of the of the households in the U.S. have smart speakers, and 73% um, of those smart speaker owners 
are conducting voice searches at least once a week. Uh, so that's actually pretty solid uh, penetration for the people who do have speakers around their homes. Um, and the numbers, I think, are actually um, not quite as good, but it's still, I think it's around 50% of users use voice search on their um, smartphones uh, on a regular basis. So voice search is doing very well. As a percentage of total searches, I would say we're still pretty far from, you know, let's just say a quarter um, if, if we're doing half of half. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we're still pretty far from that being the case for voice. Um, but I think that we're headed in that direction. Um, we're headed. It, it's definitely growing. And certainly if we start to see things like um, AirPods or other headphones with voice assistants built into them, I think we'll start to see um, voice search jump up even more in 2019. On the visual side, I think, you know, we've been saying this for a while. I think 2019 is going to be a big year for visual search. It didn't quite get to market in a lot of ways until the end of 2018. So I think uh, 2019, we're going to see a big push in that area. I agree. Visual search, I think, is the thing I'm most excited about for 2019. I think they're really interesting, not just the platforms like Pinterest and Google uh, embedding that technology natively in their apps, but a ton of retailers have visual search now in their own in their own apps. Most notably, Farfetch just launched a really cool visual search uh, tool in their app. And I think they're just generally ahead of the curve in retail uh, with those tech-based tools. But I think visual search, once it gets unlocked and cameras get smart enough and consumers, you know, figure out how to use it. Imagine if Instagram had a visual search capability. Uh, that would be, I mean, massive. So it's something that I'm watching really closely and we're all watching really closely and really, really excited about it next year. Yeah, I think it's it'll just be one of the biggest challenges is going to be that the education for the consumers knowing that it is out there to like, cause to your point, Adam, a lot of this kind of rolled out at the very end of 2018. Um, and I always kind of go back to knowing that with an iPhone, you can now scan a QR code natively from like the camera app. So I think it's getting people to change from like a, a text form in Google to like, Oh, that's right. I can just take a snap and it'll, it'll compile it back to all my, my pins that I liked. Or, um, I would love if Instagram, like I said, could, if I take a you know picture of a pair of shoes or whatever it is and it matches it back to all of the different photos that I've liked or you know categorize all the different you know like, re like retailers that I have something so much of that would that be fantastic for like the whole inspiration and you know finding those products but I think that's that's just like one challenge to you know think about is how easily people are going to make that switch to just taking pictures and then going from there um, I hope people still don't figure out that Instagram is a part of Facebook yeah. because I think they have <laughs> they have uh some really interesting opportunities if they can keep the platform as is. And if not, then we'll figure out what the next Instagram is. But um, there's exciting stuff, I think, coming from them next year as well. I agree. And like the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll note to that is with these new ways of searching comes a new way of being found. So as a brand, uh, I would say the first step is definitely be talking to your search teams, your SEO teams, because uh, they they are deep into understanding how the different uh, algorithms are categorizing and finding content across, uh, you know, Alexa, Google Home, and Siri from a voice perspective. Um, and from there, you can optimize your website to make sure that you are being pulled up in the most relevant way, in the most relevant way, given how each of these different um algorithms are searching for content and, and information on their platform. So, uh, you know, that's the thing I think that, like that, that's a great first step, um, as this continues to become a more and more prominent search channel. So our last question is how will content distribution windows change? Adam, I'm going to 
throw this one just right to you at first because I know you have are a big fan of OTT video. Like you are an <laughs> expert in that space. So, um, how have you seen this change over 2018? Yeah, well, it actually hasn't changed as much as we thought it was going to at the beginning of the year. Um, the one thing that we were really watching for was uh, the launch of a premium VOD window, which would um, launch about two weeks after a movie came out in theaters and let you rent a movie at home from Amazon or iTunes for a very premium price, like 30 or $40. Um, and that's something that we know was in discussion, um, and it seems to have slipped out of discussion. It's definitely not happening this year, obviously. Um, it's unclear if that's even on the table for 2019 or if the whole idea just uh, was thrown out the window. Um, but uh, regardless of whether that that particular window emerges or not, um, we are, are about to see a big shift in content distribution no matter what because of everything else that's happening in the OTT space uh, in 2019. We know that Apple is launching their OTT service. We know that Disney is coming in with Disney Plus and also is going to take Hulu International. Um, so there's, and we also know that um, AT&T is going to launch some kind of possibly HBO branded series of options for streaming services. Right. There's also seems a little bit of a mess. Yeah. There's also like Warner media is part of that as well. It's like the right. same, but separate, but it's two different things. I'm, I'm confused by it. Yeah. There's a, there's, there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be at least three major OTT launches just in the U S um, that's not even including launching Hulu internationally and who knows, you know, globally what, what else might launch as well. Um, so, Lots of movement, <laughs> um, and uh, that's definitely going to have an impact on on Windows and how content is distributed. Just looking at what Disney has already announced about the Disney Plus streaming service with original Star Wars and Marvel content coming to Disney Plus first, that is going to have an impact on the rest of the industry as well, for sure. Yeah. The um, one thing that I would love to ask you is that have you recently checked the vitals of MoviePass? Uh, do we know where that stands at, at, at the end of 2018? Uh, they did just announce their plans for 2019, which they promised will not keep changing. Um, and they do have, I believe it's three separate tiers and you actually can get back to the unlimited not unlimited, but the one movie per day plan. I think it's now $25 a month. Yeah, it looks thirty dollars a month. Yeah, it looks like so. I just, I just pulled it up. It looks like there are three tiers, which, which will range between uh, nine, ten dollars, and fifteen dollars for the first tier. Then there's an all access, which costs between fifteen and twenty, and then the red carpet, which costs between twenty and twenty five. With that, and that also includes one IMAX 3D or other large format screen each month. So that's the red carpet uh, pass right there. So they are still alive, confirmed, <laughs> yeah, as I of mean, December when 17th. To, when it comes to theatrical, I'm I'm looking to see if um, you know someone like Disney or someone like Amazon would come in and offer uh, their own version of a movie pass. Like we we have seen that there's clearly some demand for consumers. They like the idea of all you can eat movies in theaters as well. Um, and that's not going to be for everybody, but it's probably for some people. Um, and you could certainly imagine that being a, an add-on tier to something like Disney Plus at some point. Right. And even potentially with that, there's the idea of regulation kind of loosening up so these companies could actually buy movie theater chains. So Disney could own a, a movie theater chain with them, which then this fuel that larger super bundle conversation that we've started uh, in 2018 of this year. 
October. Yep. <laughs> I, th- I think that that is, uh, at this point, I think it's almost inevitable that, I don't know if it'll happen in 2019, but at some point it seems inevitable that Disney will buy a movie theater chain. Um, and probably, you know, other studios as well uh, at that point. Interesting. I'm excited for it. I'll get sucked into that that super bundle. I like, Disney's got great content, Star Wars, Marvel. I mean, I'm there, guys. I'm in. Um, but Christina, any what are your thoughts on the OTT streaming space? What do you think is going to happen, change? I'm curious to see how quickly the tipping point for consumers comes with how many services they subscribe to. Yep. Um, for example, I have, well, my media diet is <laughs> skewed because I am an adult still using my parents' cable subscription over the top. I don't know how skewed that is, though. I don't know. I think almost everybody I know uses at least one person's other password for something. Yes. Which might not even be in the worst interest of the platforms themselves, frankly. Yeah, they could they could definitely be cracking down on it if they wanted to be. But right now it's part of customer acquisition. Well, I hope they don't because <laughs> I get everything now. Thanks, mom. Um, but for example, I have Hulu Live right now so I can watch the 49ers on Sundays. And that's the only reason I have it. Um, and then I have Netflix and I have... Uh, a whole host of HBO, Showtime, Amazon Prime Video. Uh, I also don't watch a ton of TV. So I'm wondering, too, how many services one person can truly have to watch all of the things they want and how that kind of changes the way that these services roll out or pricing models, pay-per-view models, things like that, um, I think, will be interesting also to watch yeah it's, it's definitely um the, like the whole idea of like like the bundle fatigue or subscri- like, sub, sub, excuse me subscription fatigue um is definitely on on approach because uh, like what you mentioned is that's just available now but then we're going to have you know five more surfaces coming out in you know 2019 so for all we know maybe consumers are willing to pay for everything that they want and it might end up being more than a cable bundle, but it's on their own terms. It's on demand. And that's what they're paying for is the luxury of no ads on demand. And it's there when you want to watch it. Well, and also what you're paying for is freedom. It's right. freedom of choice. You're not necessarily even going. I don't watch anything else on Hulu. Right. I do a couple other things, but you pay for the option to watch those things. Yeah, absolutely. You're not, you're not, you're not locked into a schedule of the old linear broadcast television ways. So yeah, excited to see how, how, how it rolls out. But with that, that is the wrap of our 2018, uh, outlook, what we were, what, what we're watching in 2018. Um, Adam, Christina, anything else that you guys want to talk about, say anything that's been keeping you up at night, or is this some news that just slipped in at the very end of 2018 that you're like, wow, didn't see this coming, wish I knew? CRISPR babies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't wow. expecting that one quite yeah. yet. Yes. The future. <laughs> the future is now. Yeah. Wow. Test two babies yeah. are here. Well, with that... Thank you for listening. Uh, This is our year-end special. We'll be back live from the show floor in CES in January. And uh, if you like what you heard, share, tell a friend. It's not too late to leave an iTunes review. That would be the greatest holiday gift you can give us and our team here at Floor 9. Uh, The more reviews we have, the more listeners we get, the more budget we get for this show, which means it's better for everybody involved. So thank you, and we'll talk soon. 